This morning, I kind of wanted to start a little this thing on here. Start a little series, uh, just briefly, probably two, maybe three weeks. Uh, we just finished the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we were in that Gospel for about four or five years, and so it was a good thing to end that. <laughs> and uh, we finished all twenty-eight chapters, and that was a blessing to our hearts. Um, but this morning, I, I just want to, we have our annual business meeting coming up in a couple of weeks, and I kind of wanted to revisit with you, uh, just taking a closer look at the church, what Christ says about his church, and the importance of um, the church and the local body of believers. And I think that um, there's no better place to look than the book of First Thessalonians. So if you open your Bibles to First Thess- Thessalonians, we'll be looking at that this morning and uh, we'll be zeroing in on chapter 5, but I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm actually going to read the book of 1 Thessalonians to you. We don't do that very often. Usually we focus in on a verse or two, but I think it's so important to take time now and then to be under the hearing of the Word of God. And uh, I can't think of a better way to encourage you and to um, just model for you what a, a church should be and what it should look like. And we find that in the book of First <clears throat> Thessalonians. And so I'm going to go ahead and read. I'll be reading the ESV so you can follow along in your Bibles, and it'll probably take several minutes. So don't fall asleep on me. You know, this is the Word of God. You know, the Old Testament, they made you stand every time they read the Word of God. And, and we've already had our scripture reading for the day. I wouldn't be so cruel as to make you stand for the entire book of First Thessalonians. I know some of you have physical capacities and would be unable to do so. But I want to just uh, pray that God's Word, the reading of His Word, would be a blessing to your hearts this morning out of the book of First Thessalonians. And there's a little outline there in your thing, and you can actually go along and follow along. We're not going to hit all these points, but I just wanted to hold the Thessalonian church up as a model church. And the reasons uh, given there, John MacArthur lists uh, several reasons, and I listed them for you. And so you can notice those as we go through, um, as you you hear it uh, read to you. Now, as we go through the book, you can follow along there in the outline and pick out those different um, points Beginning in verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but also your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, and you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. For being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that 
somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we did for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God with him will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, will, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light. Children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amazing. What an example, what a model for a New Testament church. I mean, this was a church that was a young church. It was a church that was obviously going through some issues. And that's just to say there is no perfect church, right? There just isn't. You're always going to find issues in a church because churches are made up of sinners who are saved by God's grace. Amen? heard one pastor tell somebody, said, I don't go to church because it's, it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And the pastor said, well, we got room for more. <laughs> Come on in. And that's so true. We need to re- be reminded sometimes about the importance of the church. This is the church that Christ died for. The church that he gave everything he had to purchase To make holy. This is the church that he saved us into. This is the church that he calls us to serve. Calls us to be part of. This is the church that he baptized us into. Through the Holy Spirit. It's his church. It's not our church. 
And the church needs to be healthy. The church needs to be a place where God is honored and lifted up. You notice that when we read through there, it talked about the coming day of the Lord. And I wonder sometimes if we get so caught up in the prophecy that Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, that sometimes we just kind of throw our hands up and say, well, I just think I'll sit around and wait. What's the use of doing anything? If Christ is coming back, we're going to be out of here, just like it said there. We'll be raptured out of here. So why, why toil? Why work? Why, why do all this? Why deal with people? Do all this? Just kind of relax. But you notice... This church was a a wonderful church. But you see time and time and time again, Paul, in a very gracious way, saying, hey, we know that you're doing this, and that's good. But don't stop. Excel. I want you to excel more. I want you to push on further. And sometimes we forget, we grow complacent in our church. Not just this church, I'm talking about the universal church of Christ. And as you look over the the community of churches in the United States today, there's so many unhealthy churches. There's so many churches that are focused on things that are not found in the Word of God. There's so many organizations that look at themselves, the churches that look at themselves as a corporation, as an organization. And so they have marketing and they have all these, these things to kind of grow their organization. I'm not saying we can't learn from that, beloved, but we also have to put it in perspective. And we have to remember the promise that Christ promised us that he will build his church. It's not our church, it's his church. And growth is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now obviously we need to do things in the process. We need to be sharing our faith. We need to be living holy lives. We need to be having fellowship with one another, praying, coming under the teaching of the the Word of God. But I see today in our communities, there's a lot of busy churches. There's a lot of churches that are doing a lot of things, and a lot of those things are good things. But there's also a lot of unhealthy churches. And just because a church is busy doesn't make it healthy. One writer, when he thought of the church, he was reminded of Noah's Ark. And he said this, If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. (laughs) That's what he thought of the church. That's a cynical view of the church at best but you know what part of that is true there's so many churches that are filled with so many things that are outside the bounds of the word of god and we need to be reminded that a church is not an organization it's far better than that it's not just an association it's not a place where you come on a sunday to try to feel holy patch up your hard week That's not what a church is. A church is an organism. A church is a living thing. It's something that Christ birthed at Pentecost. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of the simple fact that Christ gave everything he had for his church. 
and that we're not to grow complacent. In verse 4, or verse 1 of chapter 4 there in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how to walk and please God, and then he even throws in there, just as you were doing, I know you're doing this, this is good. But then he says this, that you do so more and more. See, Paul did not want these believers, even though they were in a model church, they were in a church that was doing pretty much everything right. He didn't want them to grow complacent. He didn't want them to relax. He didn't want them to sit back and say, okay, you know, this is okay. Let's just, let's just stop right here. And sometimes I, I hear things from people, even in our own church, that kind of grease my heart. Not that the church is about size at all, but when I hear things that, well, you know, I, I enjoy our church being so small. I like that our church is small. It just kind of goes against, to me, what the call of God is upon the church to, to spread the gospel, to see people come to Christ. And sometimes it's very easy for us to grow comfortable in our small little church because we know that If we start bringing in new people who are new in Christ, maybe they're a little rough around the edges. Maybe it'd be a little more inconvenient for you to park. If our church grew, our poor neighbor would just come unglued probably. (laughs) Pray for him. We have a guy right across the street. Pray for him. Pray that God would reach out to him and touch his heart. He needs the Lord. But Paul did not want them to grow complacent. I mean, over and over again throughout the letter as we read it, he gives thanks for them. Calls them things like, you're, you're my hope, you're my joy, you're my crown, my exaltation. You're my glory. I mean, he was encouraged with this church, but he did not. He did not want them to grow complacent. They were everything that that little outline says. And you can see it as you read through it and you compare those, those verses to what those, those points are. You'll see that they were doing that. But I want to, over the next couple of weeks, Take kind of a, a microscope and look at the church, a magnifying glass, if you will. And what makes up the church? And there's, there's different aspects of the church as we know it. But the two places I want to kind of focal, focus in on like a laser beam are basically the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And the sheep and the shepherd. Because I think that we're, we're blessed in our church to have a very good relationship. But I don't want us to take that for granted. Because nothing, beloved, nothing can hinder the spiritual progress of a church than an unwholesome relationship between the shepherds and the sheep. That's just very clear. If the shepherds are not fulfilling their proper spiritual responsibility to the sheep, and the sheep are not fulfilling their proper spiritual responsibility to the shepherd, 
The church can never really be what God intends it to be. And it can't break down at a more critical level. Because when you look at troubled churches, and I've talked to pastors who just have nightmarish stories to tell you. You meet them at conferences. And they're going back to a church where they don't know if they, he, the, the, the board voted him out while he was at a conference. He doesn't know what he's going back to. I've talked to men like that. And I just, I can't wrap my mind around that. I've talked to pastors that have major issues, major sin going on in their churches. I mean, to the degree where choir members are sleeping with one another and all these things are going on. And it's just compounded. And because of maybe their form of church government or whatever it might be, their hands are tied. All they can do is get up and preach the gospel. I mean, I thank God every day that we're not a church like that. That we don't have those kinds of issues going on. Not that we're a perfect church. We're not. None of us are perfect. Stand before you today, I've failed this church many times over. And it's only because of the grace of God and the grace of God's people that he allows me to continue to minister here. That's just reality. But I want us to look at this morning, basically, the leadership of the church, the leadership of the local church. What does it involve? Well, there's, there's basically... Four basic titles in the New Testament, if we're just to focus on the leadership of the New Testament church for a couple minutes here. And they're listed there in your your outline on the back page. The first one, very familiar term for many of us, is the term elder. Comes from the Greek word presbyteros. That's where you get the word Presbyterian. That identifies basically a church leader as one characterized by spiritual maturity and wisdom. Leaders who are spiritually mature, spiritually wise. And that term is used over and over. You can see it over and over in the New Testament. Very early on, as the church is being established in the book of Acts, they made it a very, very high priority to make sure that the local churches had elders And that these men were characterized by spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom. And they were given the responsibility to lead the church. And you can look at the qualifications if you just jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see there very clearly the qualifications of these overseers. And even qualifications of those who serve the church, the deacons. He says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, This is a trustworthy saying, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's another word that's being used, or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an elder or an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, a sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, honorable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then it goes on and it lists even the information for deacons. Another place that lists these qualifications is over in Titus chapter 1. But see, the Bible, my point is this, the Bible is very clear about who is to lead the church. Heard on KFAX last week, there was a pastor's panel, and I was listening to it, and they were talking about division in the church. And one of the pastors on the panel was a woman. Now, I don't have anything against women. I mean, obviously, I'm married to one. Okay, I mean, that would be a big issue. But from the very beginning of Genesis, God has laid out a purpose, a plan here. And one of the purposes and plan is that every indication is that elders, people who lead the church, one of the qualifications is that there are men. Now, you can take that up with God if you have a problem with that. You know, that's, that's his rule, not mine. Sometimes I see the wisdom of that, and sometimes, to be honest with you, I don't. Because sometimes our women seem to have a lot more sense than us at times. But that's how God laid it out. And we have to respect that. And on this panel, the first call called in and said, well, you're talking about divisiveness in the church. And the call, Craig Roberts said, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Talking about divisiveness on the church, why do you have a woman representing a pastoral leadership role when the Bible clearly forbids that? Are you saying that we just take the Bible and we throw it out when it comes to things like that because it's not politically correct? Either God speaks what he says or he doesn't. And they kind of backstepped a little bit and finally Craig Roberts said, well, I have three men here looking at me and they're not going to answer this question. (laughs) And so finally the lady spoke up and she was very gracious in her answer. I mean, I can imagine her being her being put on the spot like that. And she has a wonderful ministry in Oakland. And she answered the, the question basically was, well, you know, I'm the one that's out there feeding the hungry and, and, and God has, you know, blessed me with this ministry and, and this kind of thing. And, and uh, I, I wanted to call and say, okay, you can do all the ministry you want. It's not about that. It's about the idea that God has restricted, he has restricted who are the leaders of the church and who are not. And they kind of just kind of floated over the whole thing, to be honest with you. But the first term there is elder, is elder. There's another word that's used, and we read it there, and these these are used interchangeably, overseer or bishop. And it basically means the church leader is not only characterized by spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom, but also given the responsibility of spiritual oversight and spiritual authority. See, they go together. And that's the word that's used there in 1 Timothy as we read. They're overseers. They're given the responsibility to oversee the church as a whole. And then the third word there is a very common word that we know, pastor. 
I had a kid ask me one time at a thing, is your first name pastor? Is that what they call it? No. No. It's just a title. That's all it is. It's a title. And it's kind of funny in the church that we refer to pastors as Pastor Steve. I mean, I don't think at your job, when you go, say you're a software engineer, I don't think anybody comes up to you, hey, software engineer Bob, how are you doing? I, don't, I just don't think that happens. Or company owner John or Ken or whatever it might be. You know, you don't do that. Now, I understand that it's out of respect, and hey, I'm for that. You know, you, just so I can be clear, you can call me whatever you want. Just don't call me a bad name. You can call me Steve. You can call me whatever. You know, you don't, you don't have to call me pastor. I understand if you want to, and that's fine. I, I totally get that. And it's, in a way, a reminder to me that that is my role here. So in a way, it's good. But it really indicates here that this leader, this pastor, this word, is characterized by spiritual feeding and spiritual protection. Spiritual feeding and spiritual protection. It has the idea of being a shepherd, of overseeing a flock of sheep. And you're looking at the duty that he has to feed the flock and to protect them from the wolves that may come into the flock and try to disrupt things or cause damage or cause harm. That's the role of a pastor. I mean, the role of the, 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 the leaders of the church, whether it's an elder, overseer, or pastor, is so far outside of the box when it comes to Sunday morning. What you see here Sunday morning is just a little sliver of what the elders in this church do. Well, there's a fourth word that's used there, and it literally means those who lead you. Just call the word leader. One commentator refers to it as chief. And I thought, ah, I don't like that word, chief. But leader. It indicates that there's, there's, there's those who are responsible as an overseer, elder, or pastor. And they're given certain spiritual discernment and sp- spiritual guidance. But there's also those among us who lead very well. And see, these, these different terms here all kind of make up church leadership. But you know what? You may have somebody that does a pastor role very, very well, but maybe he's kind of not, maybe lacking in the leadership role. Or maybe they're, they're good at overseeing things, but when it comes down to the, the fine details of the matter, then, you know, they got issues. They can't, they can't fulfill the task. That's why in the, in the New Testament, there was always a plurality of leadership. It didn't fall on one guy's shoulders. It didn't fall on one elder. It fell on a plurality of leadership. And that protects. It protects the church. It protects the leaders. It protects all involved. And we've seen over the years with certain Churches in history where one man was exalted and lifted up above everybody else. I went, my first pastor's conference I ever went to was a a pastor's conference back in Hammond, Indiana. And this church was run by one guy. He had a lot of help, but he was run by one guy. 
And this guy basically walked on water. Whatever this guy wanted, he got. Didn't matter. And they had a huge ministry. They had, they, their, their, their claim to fame was, we have the world's biggest Sunday school. And I believe it. I was there. I saw hundreds of buses from a tri-state area bringing thousands of kids to church every Sunday morning. Amazing. Staggering. Here I am at First Baptist Church, Fremont. We got one little bus, and we make a, a run to Hayward and pick up 30 kids. And I thought, well, this is big stuff. I went back there, and I thought, man. I mean, they had hundreds of buses. And at first, I was kind of impressed with all that. And then I thought, wait a minute. Why are you bringing all these people from all these different states to your church? Why don't you train some men and send them out and maybe start a church where they're at? That makes a lot more sense to me. And that seems what the Bible tells us to do. You see the New Testament model doing that. See, our goal here is not to grow a big mega church. And, you know, no. I mean, if we expanded to the point where, you know what, it got a little tight here, maybe we'd look at branching out into San Jose or branching out somewhere else on the peninsula. Simply because that's what God would have us to do. It's not about just having a huge church. And unfortunately, that's what it's become with the modern-day church growth movement. It's all about numbers with some people. I just want you to know it's not about numbers here, clearly. (laughs) We're going to continue to teach the Word of God in a systematic, expository way. You know, I don't care what people say. That's what we believe. That's where we believe the power is. That's where we believe that your needs will be met is through the power of the Word of God. Not through some fancy little topical discussions here and there on how to have a happy family or how to have more money in your wallet or how to have a better marriage. All those things will come across our path as we teach systematically through the Bible. That should be a good thing. That should be a freeing thing. Because I'm not up here standing what I want to say, standing here saying what I want to say. I'm telling you what God's word says. And that's what's important. So what then is a church leader? He's a man with spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom, spiritual oversight, spiritual authority, who spiritually feeds and spiritually protects the people and gives them spiritual discernment of not only their condition, but gives them spiritual guidance on how to get to a better place in their condition. That's what a leader in the local church should be concerned with. Now, putting these shepherds, putting these elders, putting these pastors in place was crucial for the early church. In the the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says he's ordaining elders in every city. Everywhere within the church, there had to be leaders. There had to be leaders. People need to be led. And it was crucial that the church has shepherds to provide wisdom and discernment and protection and guidance and leadership. That's their responsibility. Now the very important point about the reason we read 1 Thessalonians is because it was a model church. But I also want you to know 
that a lot of people don't understand that this church is only months old in Thessalonica. Months old. And so you have all these brand new Christians who left their pagan gods and they came to Christ. And they're baby Christians. And you might ask yourself, how can that kind of a congregation find any kind of leadership, any kind of elders who are spiritually mature and spiritually wise? Who can lead people in the right direction? How are you going to find people in a spiritually immature congregation that are mature enough to lead? Well, the answer is you probably won't. You probably won't. And Paul didn't. If you read through that book, basically you're you're going to find no mention of elders. You're going to find no mention of overseers, no mention of pastors, no mention of leaders. But there is definitely in verse 12 the mention of people in in chapter 5. The mention, chapter 5, verse 12, he mentions people He says, we ask brothers to respect those who what? Labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Are over you in the Lord. Doesn't use the word elder, doesn't use the word pastor. Somehow, Paul with his apostolic authority, he was led by the Holy Spirit clearly, he identified certain men within that congregation and entrusted to them some form of leadership. You might say they were kind of elders in the process. They don't bear the title of elder, but they were certainly given a certain portion of the responsibility. And they were moving in that direction. And one day, they most likely became elders. They became overseers. They became pastors and leaders within the Thessalonican church. And you know what? That would not be an easy process to go through. I mean, think of this. They're all pretty much young Christians. They were all equally old in the Lord, young. And it would be difficult to choose certain men out of a young group of men who were all brand new Christians, basically, to be the leaders among their own peers. You have to understand, a lot of the people that were coming into this church were very common people. Many of them had been slaves. And when they were selected for their service in the church because of their spiritual giftedness, when the apostles saw certain things in them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God gifted them in a way to identify them, and they sought them out to be leaders of the church. They weren't used to leadership. They were used to being a slave. All of a sudden, you have somebody who was a slave who maybe served a pagan god. They get saved. They come into this church, and maybe they have some innate ability, some some God-given abilities in leadership, and Paul recognized that. And so they went through a process of learning about leadership about learning about spiritual wisdom, about learning about spiritual maturity. So it wasn't an easy thing for them to go through. I'm sure some of them probably looked at these guys and said, what are you in charge of? Why why, why did he put you in charge? Why not me? 
And you see that go on even in churches today. That's why there in verse 14, he says there was apparently some unruly among them. There was some conflict in the church. Even though it was a model church, there was some conflict. There were some faint-hearted people. Idle, that's what that means, unruly. There were some weak. There were some who demanded their patience. Even in verse 15, he, he says, don't do like some of these people are doing, rendering evil for evil. He has to correct them. Say, don't go down that road. That's not right. We don't want you to do that. And Paul wants those issues resolved immediately. And I think a lot of that probably happened at that leadership level when they were kind of wondering who was going to be who. But Paul loves them so much, he wants to make sure that as he appointed them under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that these leaders within this this church he wanted them to make sure that they were put there by the holy spirit see that's why here in this church when it comes to elders we do not vote in elders that's not what we do we aren't self-appointed the leadership of this church isn't some group of guys that got together and appointed themselves the leadership of the church Matter of fact, the Bible speaks of Diotrephes who loved the, the preeminence, it says. He was self appointed. We aren't appointed by popular vote. It isn't who has the biggest business, it isn't who has the greatest business sense. But the plurality of godly shepherds in a church is needed. And it becomes known in a church because it's so obvious who they are. That they're spirit-led, that God has gifted these men and they function in that role. And so what we do is, as elders, we pray for God to give us wisdom. And the Bible clearly says, if anyone among you desires the work of an elder or an overseer, he desires a good thing. And I can't help believe that I know that there's men within our congregation right now that one day will be serving as elders. Because I see it very clearly. God has gifted them in a very blessed way. And we're in that process. We're letting God do His work. The worst thing you could do as a leader is rush that process. But it's important that we have those leaders step up when the time comes. Because it's much needed. It doesn't fall on one or two men. That's not the way the Bible laid it out. It said there's a plurality of leadership. Well, what is the responsibility of the shepherd to the sheep? And we'll close with these three quick points here. What are the, the responsibilities of the sh- shepherd to the sheep? 
So if you're a sheep and you're not a shepherd, you can coast until next Sunday. (laughs) But next Sunday, we're going to talk about the responsibility of the sheep to the shepherds. So you're, you got grace until then. Just remember. What's the, what's the first responsibility that it says in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? It's all right here, neatly packed in one little verse. It says, we ask you, brothers, it says, to respect those who labor among you. Respect those who labor among you. The first responsibility of the shepherd is to labor among the sheep. Notice it says among the sheep. It doesn't say those who labor over the sheep or those who labor for the sheep. No, it says labors, they labor among the sheep. That's the first identifying mark of a pastor or elder or leader within the local church. That they diligently labor among you. I mean, we don't need to tear this apart. I mean, it says what it says. Diligently means diligently. It means you work hard. You do what God's called you to do. Paul uses a word there that means to work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. To exhibit great exertion. And you know what? I'll just, I'll tell you, you know, this, this message is as much for you as it is for me. Because I need to be reminded of these things. I need to be reminded that, yeah, you've been called to a certain task. And are you doing it to the point of sweat and exhaustion among God's people? Are you working until you're weary? See, the... The leader's, the shepherd's role is not outside the the confines of the church. It's not long distance. It's to be intimately involved with the body. I mean, when you think of a shepherd and the sheep, what kind of shepherd would it be if, if the sheep were on one hillside and the shepherd was on the other? That wouldn't work out very well. And it amazes me sometimes because I hear of, of, of pastors who, they'll pastor a church in this city and they live three cities away. How do you do that? How could you possibly do that? It just seems that would be very difficult to really get to know your your body. But the idea here is that we're intimately involved with the church in the midst of the people. Alongside them in spiritual labor. What's he doing? He's explaining the gospel, explaining the truth, applying the truth. Warning them, admonishing them, counseling them, helping them. I had a pastor tell me one time, we were talking about ministry, and he's in a small church too, and he was saying how he has a line in his ministry. And he doesn't cross that line. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's certain things that I just won't do. I said, really? Like what? And he listed off some of those things. And I thought, that's interesting. And I have a lot of respect for this individual. And I thought, maybe I'm doing things wrong or something. I don't know. 
but God hasn't gifted me with the ability to draw a line. That could be bad, or that could be good. Depends how you look at it. And you know what? I see that heart, that same heart, that same calling in the men that I've served with here at Grace Bible Church. There's no line in the sand. As a matter of fact, I'd be very angry with you if you were part of our congregation and something happened at 1 a.m. in the morning and you sat in the hospital room from 1 a.m. till 8 a.m. before you thought, well, I didn't want to wake the pastor or I didn't want to wake the elder or I didn't want to cause anybody. No, that's why we're here. We're here to meet your needs. We're here to serve you. Don't ever forget that. If it gets too much, that's, that's up to us to say, whoa, this is too much. But until that time comes, we're to labor among you. And it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he, Paul likens himself to a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children. I mean, some of you moms here, is, is, is the job of a mother just, you know, nine to five? No, not at all. I mean, the job of a mother, especially if you've got a newborn, man, you're 24-7 for weeks. You don't get to sleep. You don't get to do nothing. It's so funny when you see a young couple, they get married, and they're so happy, and they're living their life, and then they have their first child, and they're so happy, but things change so drastically. All of a sudden, they're not going out every night to eat, going over and doing this, and all of a sudden, man, they're, they're a slave to their child. Why? Because they care for that child. It's a a 24-hour-a-day job. And Paul treated that congregation like that. It's important that we labor among the sheep. That we do what God has called us to do. So don't feel you're imposing. You have a need If we can't meet it, we'll find somebody, hopefully, that can. But it's not just about being here on a Sunday morning and preaching a message. That's just a small sliver of ministry. I know there's several men within our congregation that I could call at 3 o'clock in the morning if I needed something. If I was stranded somewhere, they'd come and get me. They may not like it, but they would do it. Because that's the kind of men they are. And I appreciate that. 1 Timothy 4.10 says this, It is this for which we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. See, it's all about perspective. Why, are you, why would you work yourself to the point of sweat and exhaustion and agonize over this? You put it in perspective, that's what God would have you to do. That's the calling that you have upon your life. To see God draw people to himself through the message of the word as you give it out. You can't be indifferent and lazy and undisciplined and be in the leadership role of a church. 
just won't work. Someone said this, a cross, yes, a cross stands in the way of spiritual leadership. A cross on which the leader must consent to be impaled. And that's true. That's true. Now, you have to put everything in balance because I'm also reminded of the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish minister. He died at the age of 29. (laughs) And before he died, he turned to his friend who was sitting near him on the bed and he said this, I have killed the horse. Now I can't deliver the message. (laughs) So there's a point at which you could go too far down that road, but I don't see us approaching that anytime soon, to be honest, with myself and with you. We're given the responsibility to be a servant to the sheep in every area that we can. Secondly, quickly, we're also given authority over the sheep. It says that right there, who are over you in the Lord. They have charge over you. The spiritual leadership of a church has charge over you. It means to stand before someone or preside or lead or direct. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 three times. It means to be in charge, to have authority. I mean, it's a delegated authority, clearly, because we're under shepherds of who? Christ. But he has delegated that authority to the leaders of the church. We lead, we direct. We have the responsibility to give you spiritual wisdom, protection, direction, guidance. We oversee the general health of the church. Make sure its spiritual tone is intact. Its group morale is going well. Sometimes you're involved in personal relationships, resolving conflict, discovering problems, solving problems. I mean, it's our responsibility as leaders of the church to to do creative planning, strategy, assessment, analysis, all those things. And like I said, Certain individuals do those things well and certain individuals don't. That's why you have a plurality of leadership. But notice that little phrase there. It says, in the Lord. In the Lord. We're not self-appointed. This isn't an ego trip. It's not something that man made up. The church members don't give us this authority. We didn't just take this authority on our own. This authority doesn't come from men, it comes from God. It comes from people who are called, who are equipped, who are appointed by God to serve the local church. And it's our duty to rule for His sake, for the Lord's sake, not for personal power, not for personal prestige or gain. It's not about a career. It's not about advancement. But it says, in the Lord, for the Lord. That authority rests in the Lord. That's the only, you take the Lord out of this, I am nothing, absolutely nothing. I have no authority whatsoever. 
And so we're given that authority by the Lord within the local church, but not beyond that. That doesn't make you a statesman or a community leader or any of those things. Those who serve the church should do so with a very restricted vision for the church. What's good for the church? That's the point. We have that authority over the sheep granted to us by the Lord. And then lastly, it says that they may admonish you or they give you instruction. The third responsibility of shepherds within the sheep or to the sheep within the church, not only to labor among the sheep and to have exercise authority over the sheep, but also to provide instruction for the sheep. That word there is often translated in the the New Testament. You could either say give instruction or admonish. Basically, it means to instruct someone toward a correct view of something. It carries the idea of that if you keep going this way, you're going to have problems. And you've got to turn this way. That's what a leader does. That's what a pastor does. That's what someone in ministry does. They come alongside somebody and they, they minister them. Make sure they're on the right path. It's not just academic. It's not just information. It's instruction with the idea of actually changing people. Teaching them, correcting them. And you know what? When I preach a message, I'm always preaching, hopefully, to change your view of something. The only way I know to do that is to teach the Bible and the way we do. It'd be very easy for me to get up here on a little hobby horse and preach on whatever I want every week. That'd be kind of fun, actually. You know, pay, play Bible roulette. Let's see, where are we going? Oh, we'll, we'll preach on that topic. That sounds good. But when you have to systematically teach through books of the Bible, I can't tell you what it does to your own heart. You're having to face certain issues in your own life that maybe I wouldn't teach on that topic because I don't have it together in that area. I wouldn't feel comfortable teaching on But you know what? When you're going through a book of the Bible, you have to address it. And God has the freedom to correct you as well as others. But shepherds are then to be skilled instructors. That's one of the differences between a deacon and an elder or a pastor. Elders are commanded to be able to teach The Word of God. That's what kind of distinguishes them. And you say, okay, well, that was interesting. But how does that boil down? How does that apply to me? Well, leaders are given to the church not to grow the church. Not to make the church bigger. Not even to, you know, put some big business plan together and come up with something along that path that looks real good on paper. That's not what we're, we're called to do. The Bible says very clearly the role of leaders within the church is simply the edification of the membership, of the body. 
of those who hear the word of God taught. Hopefully you're built up in your spirit as you hear the word of God taught. Hopefully, if nothing else came across this morning, just reading through a book of the Bible. Maybe you've never read through a book of the Bible before. Well, you know what? This morning you followed along as we read through an entire book of the Bible. We don't do that every week. But I thought it was good to see it in its context. But it's important to understand, and we're going to find out next week, not only do the shepherds have a responsibility to the sheep, but also the sheep have a responsibility to the shepherd. And we'll be looking at that next week. I hope that in anticipation of our business meeting in a couple weeks, that hopefully you understand a little more about Grace Bible Church. You understand a little more about the leaders and their heart and what Scripture says concerning that leadership. This isn't a job, beloved. It's a calling. And God places that calling on your heart. And I would pray even for the men here and and even, frankly, for the women in, in different roles of ministry. Women have different roles of ministry, too. That we would be open to God leading us, to God guiding us, to say what is going to be our part in this church, Grace Bible Church, come the year 2013. Am I just going to continue to do what I do? Or am I going to excel even more, as Paul clearly wanted the Thessalonians to do? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that as we take this look at the church and more pointedly today as the role of shepherds and pastors among us, Father, that as leaders we would first take our responsibilities very seriously, that we would do everything within our power to make sure that we fulfill those responsibilities before you first and then also minister to the sheep that you've entrusted to us. But Lord, I also pray for us as a church here in this Redwood City area, Lord. We know that we live in a tough area. This is a hard area to reach out to people and people just generally aren't receptive that much. Father, I pray that it wouldn't be about a single church, that it would be about a relationship with a Savior that came to give his life on our behalf. Father, that people would understand that that you're a God who loves them. You're a God who gave everything you had, including your son, to restore the relationship that was broken by sin. And Father, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary that when we, we come as a broken sinner to the foot of the cross and we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, you do something supernatural in our heart. It says that you transform us, that you grant us repentance, that you cause us to want to love you more. Give us a desire for your word. Fill us with your spirit. Cause us to serve the body of Christ in some way, form, or fashion. Father, we thank you that you're a gracious God. You're not some, like some gods of different religions that have no grace. It's just all about judgment. Father, you're a gracious God. But God, you're also a just God. And Lord, it's through the cross of Christ that your justice was met out, and we thank you for that sacrifice. 
So, Father, we pray for each one here. If there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, it's not about joining a church. It's about becoming part of your church. About understanding what it means to have a relationship with Christ, having their sins forgiven, turning from your own agenda to God's agenda, desiring Him to be part of your life. He created you. He loves you. He knows everything about you. I pray that you would be open to his calling this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.